Fear can never conquer me Cause you already have 
we love you with all our hearts, all our minds, all our souls, God. We give you everything we worship your spirit and your truth. There's a space in every beating heart. There's a longing reaches past the stars. There's an answer to every question mark. There's a name. There's a hope flowing through these veins. There's a voice that goes through the
has a name. Joy has a name. and the downs that we have, Lord, even through what we experience this week, uh, whatever it may be, Lord, uh, as we survey the grand sort of scale of things and we look around this big world, Lord, uh, there's a lot of trouble that we can see. And Lord, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of anger, a lot of anxiety, we continue to deal with uh, with the pandemic that's in month number eight or whatever it is, and and Lord, we we sometimes we get so cloudy in our understanding, and we begin to lose focus. We begin to lose hope. We begin to lose joy. But we are so thankful, Jesus, that through all of the storms of life, Lord, you are at the end of it. You are our hope 
in the darkness. You are the light at the end of the dark tunnel. You are our joy. You are our strength. You are our peace. You are our salvation. You are our healing. You are our, our, a provider for us, a protector for us. Uh, Lord, we are so thankful that we can call out to you in our time of trouble. We can call out to Jesus in our time of need. Lord, wherever we are, we can still reach out to you. So I pray, God, that those watching, listening, uh, we would reach out to the one who never changes. We would reach out to the one who's at the end of it all, the one who is eternal, the one who rose from the grave. Lord, we just want to be closer to you and to connect with you in a deeper way. I pray for those who, who are dealing with so much anxiety now and so much uncertainty in the name of Jesus that you would bring comfort, God. You would bring peace. You would bring hope. You would bring strength and joy. And Lord, we are, we are so thankful for the opportunity that we have simply to call upon you. May we do so no matter what the circumstance may be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you to the band for leading us in those songs. That was really, really good. And uh, welcome to all of you this morning, October the 18th, 2020. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm just going to switch places here, so there'll be a little graphic on the screen while I do that. And just want to take a moment to welcome those of you who may be here for the very, very first time. For the very first time. I'll move that a little closer. Yeah, you're here for the first time. Uh, if you can do me a favor and take your smartphone and uh, text the key phrase, reach the one to 514-900-0130. And that will help me to follow up with you, and you'll get on our electronic list and get access to all sorts of goodies that way. And I'll give you a little gift, even electronically via email, if you will do that, and you will enjoy that gift if you like Tim Hortons and coffee. Ha ha. You can visit our church at citypointchurch.ca. Uh, for all videos, updates, you know, connect with us, whatever you want, it's all there. Continue to pray for our missionaries, as usual, the Charbonneaux who are in Port-au-Prince, and Don and Marie-José Mann, who are still here in Canada, but preparing to head to various countries around the world, uh, working on leadership training, and uh, so we're, we're so proud to partner with them, and thank you so much for your prayers. And you can stay in touch with them. It's so easy to do now. Both of these missionaries have uh, presences online. And especially the, the Charbonneaux in Haiti uh, website, Facebook, all of that stuff you can do much more easily. We continue to meet online for now as the, all the cinemas in the province of Quebec pretty well are in the red zones and therefore they are closed. So we continue to meet online. Thank you for, for checking in and engaging. I would challenge uh, those of you who call this church home 
There's a little button on your screen or on your phone or whatever device you're using right now, especially if you're watching on Facebook Live, and you just a little share button. You press that button, and you're sharing to whoever you want, uh, especially your friends or your enemies or whoever you want to. And you can also do this cool thing called a watch party, which is a little more detailed, and that's where you're actually engaging with the people who you're sending the feed to. Uh, but I challenge you to do that. That's even easier than the traditional way where, you know, you talk to somebody and say, hey, you want to come to church on Sunday? Well, now all you do is you press the little share button. So I would challenge you uh, to do that uh, if you're watching on Facebook Live. Some of you are watching on our website as well. Uh, so welcome to you. And please uh, connect, connect on the comment section. Uh, if you're able to do that, let us know how, how it sounds. Uh, talk back to one another. Engage. That's the way to do it online, all right? Uh, there's a, a new announcement for you. I put this out in a weekly email, but I'll mention it this morning. Uh, there are a lot of families. Now we're into, I guess, eight months. I'd have to do the math there. But there are a lot of families, more and more now, who are struggling uh, just with the basics. And uh, those of you who know me, I work two days a week at one of the largest food banks in Quebec. Uh, we serve over 1,500 families, over 70 tons of food a week. And uh, it, the list of new people is growing. There are young families who are coming in for the first time because people are out of work, people are being squeezed uh, financially. I mean, look at the restaurant uh, sector, look at the, it, I mean, so many different uh, small businesses are being crushed uh, financially, and that puts people under, under a lot of pressure, and the government can only do so much to help people. Uh, but the church can do what the government can't do. And so I'm going to challenge you, uh, some people have already done this, to help families who are in need this season. And uh, the way it works is because we have a really good relationship with the food bank, and we can sponsor people on a weekly basis who need food. And uh, they get at that food bank a shopping cart filled with, with groceries, probably worth about 300 bucks in the store. They will get for $15, all right? And uh, so maybe you know somebody who is in need. I'm sure that you do. I'm sure that you're aware. Uh, there's, a, there's a friend, there's a family member, there's an acquaintance, and you wonder how they're doing. Maybe you're a little scared to ask them. Well, you should ask them because there is an opportunity to help them. And the way you can do that is just put them in touch with me. Uh, all my contact information is on our website, on our Facebook page. Put them in touch with me confidentially, and I will connect them to the mission. And we will be able to sponsor people uh, so that the, we can cover the cost of their basket. And again, this is happening already. There are actually a few families within our own church who are in need, and there are people who have stepped up and who have given so that those families can be looked after. Uh, you can donate to that cause uh, by just designating something on our HOPE Fund to MNG, that's Mission Nouvelle Génération, that's the food bank, or just write food bank on it. If you're giving electronically, just put a message somewhere, food bank, and that money will go literally to put food on people's tables. And again, if you know people or you are in need yourself, all I need is the contact info. And we can get that going, okay? Uh, you can give uh, online, as uh, so many of you have been doing, uh, through our website and also through e-transfer. Uh, let, me, let me be a little bit transparent with you. <laughs> the church is no different 
than any other kind of uh, organization in terms of, you know, expenses and all of that. I've often said to you, everything in life, this microphone that I'm speaking into, the camera that I'm looking into, the computer or the tablet or the cell phone that you're watching this through, guess what? It costs some money. Everything in life has an attachment to money. And when you're hit with a pandemic, it hits everybody. So I just challenge you to continue to be faithful. Our our finances have taken a hit as a church, probably to the tune of around 35%. Everything is down. And I know some people, they, they say to themselves, well, you know, you're, you're not meeting at the theater, and so we don't have to give as much. <laughs> That's not the way it works, okay? Kingdom principle uh, of giving, you want to try uh, to work yourself to a place where you're giving a tenth. We use a fancy theological term, a tithe. Okay, that's a discipline that I learned and continued to practice. Your pastor is not off the hook. Okay, your pastor tithes. And when you tithe, it doesn't matter what's going on in your, in your life. You still discipline yourself to that tenth of whatever revenue that you're getting. That's a biblical spiritual discipline. It's not, it's not uh, so that... Um, you know, your church can have a pastor who drives a nice car, okay? Uh, my salary stays the same, whatever people give. Uh, but what it is, is for you. And it, what it does is it blesses you because you learn that everything that you have ultimately belongs to God. And a tithe of not only your revenue, your time, your talent, your treasure, your gifts. There's people here who have been serving this morning. They're giving their time. They're giving their gifting and their ability. So I just challenge you to be faithful and get yourself to a place where you say, well, I'm certainly not at a place where I tithe. Just, just get consistent. And, you know, that's a way that you learn. You, you begin to develop consistency. You begin to grow that consistency and watch the blessing of God uh, in your life, okay? Enough said there. We're going to continue with our series, Dear Churches, and this is out of the very hard-hitting uh, first three chapters of the book of Revelation. Uh, no book like it in the entire Bible. Very odd, very strange, and we've been talking about this for the last couple of months or so. There are uh, seven churches that are addressed in the opening chapters of this book. And the messages that are given to these churches are very clear, very direct, and they're actually given by Jesus, and that's what makes them so interesting. Uh, I often wonder if Jesus were to step into our churches today and he were to walk into wherever the church is meeting, you know, there are churches meeting today in parking lots, there are churches meeting in some church buildings in different places around the world. Uh, here where we are in Quebec, they are allowing churches to meet, but only in uh, a maximum of 25 people uh, when they're in the red zone. But where I wonder if Jesus were to step into some of our churches today, what would he say? Would we even recognize him? Would we welcome him if he stepped in, you know, if he just walked in? And, and if he were to take the microphone and if he were to have the floor, what would he say? Well, if you read these opening chapters of the book of Revelation, you kind of have an idea of what he would say. And some of it is very, very encouraging, 
and very positive and very uplifting, and some of it is very direct and very hard-hitting and very politically incorrect. Um, and that's what I love about Jesus is he gets right to the point, and he does so uh, here. And We've been looking kind of church by church, and we are on uh, the church that's in Sardis, okay? I'm looking at a big map here in our Bible college. We are in the city of Longay right now, right near the Jacques Cartier Bridge and Longay Metro, and uh, we're so thankful for Institut Biblique du Québec for letting us run out of their chapel here. You can visit them at ibq.ca for info, but I'm looking at a big screen here with a map of Asia Minor from the first century. Uh, this is modern-day Turkey, and there are actually tours now where you can actually tour the seven churches in the book of Revelation. It's kind of like a Amazon delivery route, if you look at it, because it goes in a sequence, and the first letter is to... Ephesus, and then Smyrna, and then Pergamum, and then Thyatira, then Sardis, which we're on today, then Philadelphia, not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, okay, and then Laodicea, all right? And uh, so we're in uh, Sardis uh, today, and uh, there's a lot that we know about Sardis from the rocks. Uh, the ancient city of Sardis is still there to this day, and there's an awful lot that we can learn about it just by looking at it before we look into what Jesus had to say to it in the first century. This was a very, very wealthy city. Um, actually may have been the first city in the ancient world to mint coins back when it was ruled uh, by a kingdom called the Lydians in the 7th century B.C., um, in the first century, there was a thriving textile industry there. They would dye garments there. There was jewelry there. It was extremely wealthy. And uh, there's a couple of, of interesting stories uh, about the city o over kind of the generations. It was well before Jesus. Uh, the, the king of the Lydians way back in the 6th century B.C. named Croesus. Um, was defeated by the Persian king Cyrus in 549. But the way that it happened is quite interesting. Uh, Croesus was known as the richest man in the world at that time, and very powerful. Again, we're talking a very powerful city, and it had a, a very high mountain, kind of a, a, an escarpment there, and it was heavily fortified and protected as a result. And the story goes that uh, Cyrus, the Persian king, wanted to conquer uh, the, the city. It uh, was under a different name at that time, but what was called the city of Sardis in the first century. And, and Cyrus, the Persian, wanted to conquer. We, we know Cyrus, the Persian, uh, from Isaiah. He's the guy who brought the Jews back from Babylon to Jerusalem, which he would do later on. But anyway, the story goes that he wanted to conquer this, this city, and he couldn't because it was so well fortified, had this high escarpment, and people would stand on guard, and the Lydian guards would be there. And the story goes that one day a, a Persian soldier uh, was observing from the trees that whole escarpment and the uh, the soldiers on top who were keeping watch and so on. And one of this one of the Lydian soldiers dropped his helmet down the escarpment, and it fell all the way down. 
And the Persian soldier, very, very clever, observed what happened next. And he saw the Lydian uh, soldier way at the top of the, of the escarpment, look to his left and look to his right, and climb down on a rope on a certain side, a certain little gap in that escarpment. And he went down, picked up his helmet, and climbed right back up really easy. And so this soldier runs back to King Cyrus and says, there's a way in to that city. I just saw it. And so Cyrus was very excited by this and waited until nightfall and took the city. Uh, and it, was, it wasn't really well guarded uh, at that point in the night. It seems like the people were a little bit arrogant and felt like nothing could stop them. And of course, Cyrus had a way in now because he saw this leak in the escarpment. They went in and they took the city in 549. Uh, uh, centuries later, under the Greek ruler Antiochus III, the city would fall again and the same way. Uh, it almost seems like Antiochus learned of the trick uh, and it fell again. And both times, the, the people of the city were caught by surprise at night and the city fell. Um, in uh, the year 17, this is after Jesus was born, but before he was crucified, there was a large earthquake there in Sardis. And uh, apparently there were tremors for days and the people ignored them. And then there was a huge earthquake and there was an uh, uh, enormously funded relief e effort by Emperor Tiberius who executed Jesus, uh, you know, about uh, 13, 14 years later. And Tiberius gave all this money to, to rebuild the city and they put a uh, temple with, with Tiberius's uh, 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 bust on it and so on uh, be, because he had given so much money and he the emperor was like the guardian of the city. But there's a lot more uh, to Sardis that we can see and that we can even go and visit today. And uh, now with, with uh, the internet, people go there all the time and they take amazing photography and drone footage and you can find tons of information on Sardis just by googling around and surfing around on the internet. There's so much that you can learn about it. Uh, there was a very large uh, gymnasium there that the Greeks had put up and in Greek culture, the gymnasium was the, not only the place of training of the physical body, and they would train for the games in the nude, and they would, you know, throw the discus and bodybuild and all these kinds of things. But it was also a place of learning. In Greek culture, uh, humanism was taught. And so... Uh, the, the body, the human being, was like the center of the universe. That was Greek culture. And that was taught in that gymnasium. Right next to the gymnasium, I'll show you a few pictures in a minute, there was actually a Roman bathhouse right attached to it, a Roman bathhouse. Well, I mean, there's a lot that went on in a Roman bathhouse. The rabbis used to decry uh, the immorality that used to go on in those uh, places. And there was also, in the third century, uh, after uh, Jesus was crucified and rose again, there was the largest synagogue in the world at that time, in the known world at least, was there in uh, the city of Sardis, okay? So I'll put a few pictures on your, your screen for you. Uh, this is part of the Greek gymnasium uh, that's still there. And it looks 
kind of small on your screen there, but it is massive. And just go and, again, Google around. You're going to see pictures of this all over the Internet. And this, again, not only was there physical training there, but there was education there. And this is where the worldview of what we would call today humanism was taught. The center of the universe is man and uh, is, is the human being, and they, would, they gloried in the human body, and this is what they were indoctrinated in, uh, in these gymnasiums. Uh, the next picture you'll see here is the part of the Roman bathhouse that was, it's like through those arches there, and that was spoken against, preached against very strongly by the Jewish rabbis of the day because there was all kinds of sordid sexual immorality that would take place in there. Uh, and so, but it's interesting that it's attached to that Greek uh, gymnasium. Then we start seeing some things that bring it relevant to us and what we're about to read. Uh, there was this huge synagogue. And again, this was put up in the third century AD after Jesus uh, uh, addresses this church. But it's interesting because it's right in the corner of effectively what is a large gym. It's very odd that Jewish people would put up a synagogue and attach it to a gym that also had a Roman bathhouse attached to it. And people who look at this say, why did they do this? Did they put that synagogue there to kind of redeem the territory for God or something? Or were they just, did they just not care and they were, they didn't, care enough to distinguish themselves uh, from the Greco-Roman worship system and all that. And they said, well, this is a good place to put a synagogue, so let's build a synagogue. And this confounds archaeologists and scholars. Why would they build it there? But they built it there. It's a huge synagogue. It would seat a thousand people. And again, strangely enough, built in the corner of a, of a gym. And when we walk around in this synagogue and we observe it a little bit more, we our eyes get even bigger because we see some really odd things. Uh, you'll see on your screen a couple of statues in the foreground and in the background a little bit. They look a bit like lions. Uh, that's the uh, Cabela. Um, and that's the goddess of fertility uh, in, the, in the ancient world. <laughs> you see it right there smack in the center of the synagogue. Um, and again, this is a question. What were they trying to do with those statues? Did they, did they not care that they were there? Or did they, did they redeem those statues somehow and say, well, these don't mean anything. You know, we're talking about God, and God is uh, uh, the Lion of Judah. And maybe they took this statue and tried to redeem its value and turn it into more of a Jewish thing than a pagan thing. We don't know. We also see those eagles there at the base of that table. You'll see a, an eagle, and one of them has its, uh, it's been defaced. Its face is, is cut off. And so that was a symbol of Roman power. Roman authority. What's that doing in a synagogue? Strange. Uh, one of them is defaced. So again, um, if you're sort of uh, trying to be positive about it, you say, well, yeah, they're trying to redeem what was there already and trying to make it um, worship uh, part of the system of worshiping of, of the true God. And, you know, they weren't following the pagan ways of the people around them. But others would say, oh, it looks like there was uh, quite a bit of compromise that may have been happening in this really large synagogue. 
But then we keep looking around. We walk around the city, and you actually see some people there, so you can see how big this stuff is. But in the background of that picture, you see these huge pillars, uh, and they were much bigger when they were fully uh, uh, built. Uh, that's a statue, or sorry, a temple that was dedicated to Artemis. And Artemis was another god of fertility uh, that we see mentioned in the pages of the New Testament. And right, that's a huge, huge temple. And right on the edge of that temple, again, this is after Jesus' address uh, to them, you see a little church that's built there. And that's that little round thing that that guy is standing, and you see him standing in the arch there. Why are they building a church on the edge of a temple to Artemis? It's a bit bizarre. And in fact, you would have had to walk through the temple, uh, the, the Artemis temple, to get to the church. And it's a strange um, predicament, again, for archaeologists, historians. It's unusual that they would pick these places to put up things for the worship of the Judeo-Christian God. And it makes us wonder, what was really going on there in that place? Was it a city where the believers were living in compromise? Or was it a city where they wanted to redeem what was there? And the answer is, we don't know. But when we read the words of Jesus, first century, addressed to this church, they are very, very telling. And the title of our little message today is Church of the Living Dead, all right? Don't be too scared off by the title. I know we're, we're in October and we're moving to Halloween. There's a famous kind of cult movie called Night of the Living Dead. Well, this is the Church of the Living Dead because of what Jesus says about this church, okay? I'm going to read this. It's only six verses from Revelation chapter 3 to the angel of the church in Sardis write. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Uh, some say that this seven spirits of God is a reference to the Holy Spirit. We are not sure. I know your deeds. Oh boy. Uh, that can be a scary thing and a good thing, right? It's Jesus talking. Well, it's scary here. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. My goodness, that's strong. Verse 2, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. Strong language. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Interesting when in its history this city had been conquered two times essentially by thieves in the night. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, 
but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church's very, very strong language. But when we look even now, we can, in the 21st century, go and visit this place and see this sort of strangeness of all of these seemingly contradictory worship systems. You know, you've got the church built on the edge of the temple of a pagan fertility goddess. You've got a Kibbalah in a, in a Jewish synagogue. You've got a and all of this is is right next to a Roman bathhouse in a Greek gymnasium. You look at that and you say, strange. And you read these words of Jesus. It seems to be that there was a compromise that was happening here uh, in this church. Maybe they were trying initially to redeem some things. And again, the church that we saw in the picture postdates this. Uh, address from Jesus, but there seems to be a pattern that we see in the rocks that they maybe tried to redeem some of this stuff, but eventually the culture around them started to change them rather than them changing the culture, and they lost their distinctive Christianness and began to become like the people around them. They looked good on the outside. A lot of activity, but on the inside, Jesus is challenging them and saying essentially that their spiritual life is dead. A city that had so much wealth and so much uh, power in the ancient world seemingly came to a place of compromise. And so it brings us to some kind of challenging and disturbing questions um, today. Especially those of us who, you know, we profess to be uh, believers. We, we have a profession of faith and we, you know, we're part of a church and we go to church and this kind of thing. And we say we believe the Bible and all of that. Well, the, the challenge that we would have by reading this, this passage is, are, are we Christian by name or are we Christian by conviction? I would even go further and say, are we Christian by trade name or are we Christian by conviction? I remember the one time that I visited um, Haiti and uh, actually spent time with our missionaries there in Port-au-Prince and the whereabouts of the different cities around Port-au-Prince. And it's it's a very interesting thing to observe there. There's so much air of Christianity there. You can go to the market, and, and you've got your Christian booth, and it says Jesus on it. It's got a cross on it. It's got some passage of Scripture. You can go and take a cab somewhere, and you've got the Christian cab. You've got a van that's transporting people. It's got the Jesus thing on the front. And it seems like almost like a trade name uh, to, get, to drum up business. <laughs> Just say Jesus on it. You'll get more customers. Uh, because there, there's a kind of an air of Christianity all over the place. But underneath the surface, the religious practices in Haiti, I mean, you see, you see voodoo of a sort there that's extremely intense. And some of the folks that are driving cabs that say Jesus on them, uh, you know, in the evening, they're not, they're, they're not praying to Jesus, they're praying to somebody else, okay? They're, there, it's almost like a bit of a trade name. And I wonder, uh, as we read 
about this city uh, if we can't challenge ourselves and say, well, are we Christian in name or are we really Christian by conviction? You talk about the Greeks in that gym and how they taught their worldview uh, to people, especially young people, and they would indoctrinate them in this. The human body, the human being, essentially is the center of the universe, and that was their worldview. Well, the question for you and me today is, what's yours? Um, when you ask yourself the question, who am I in relation to the world around me? Who am I in relation to God? Uh, who am I in terms of existential questions? Where am I going when I die? Is there an afterlife? All these kinds of things have to do with your worldview. What is it? What is your worldview? And uh, if you're a professing Christian, is that Christianity really based on conviction? Or is it merely a name that we walk around with and an outward appearance that we give when there may not be necessarily a spiritual life and a heartbeat inside? And this was Jesus' criticism of the church in Sardis in the first century. Um, in prepping for this message, I found um, a very new um uh, uh, report. Uh, this is based in the U.S. where, you know, all things good, bad, and ugly are. Uh, but usually in the U.S., when you survey the church culture, uh, the Canadian church culture, while a lot smaller, isn't too far behind in terms of uh, the way it operates, in terms of the worldview, and so on. It's not too far behind. You've got a lot more people in the U.S., and of course, everything in the U.S. is tied to politics. But in general, you walk into the average uh, United States church evangelical, and you walk into a Canadian evangelical church, you're going to see a lot of similarities. And I say the word evangelical to mean that people who believe that the Bible is the Word of God, uh, and so on. And that's a general general um, sort of umbrella for the term evangelical. comes from the Greek word evangel, which means good news. So I want to give you some, some, uh, some of this report. This comes from the Cultural Research Center um, of Arizona Christian University in the U.S., and this is George Barna, and George Barna, who's um, uh, the director of the research program over there, has been doing surveys on on the church culture for years and years and years. And this survey was not only given to evangelicals, it was given to mainline Protestants and Catholics and so on. But I'll go with the evangelical uh, results because those are the ones that are most the most striking to George Barna. And this is probably the most respected voice in terms of getting a pulse on what the church culture is thinking. And here is what he says. He says this survey and this questionnaire that we've got here, and he puts it at about a 2% uh, margin of error, which, you know, they surveyed a couple of thousand people and asked them these questions. He says what this is and these results, and these results are pre-COVID. Um, he says this is a post-Christian reformation is what's going on here. And that's not good news, okay? The, the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century uh, was good news. It was when the, the Reformers said, no, 
where we're not saved by all these things that the church tells us to do, and we're not saved by all these indulgences and the things we have to do to satisfy the Catholic Church. No, we're saved by faith in Christ through grace and so on. That's the Protestant Reformation. Well, here he says this is a post-Christian Reformation. And these are some quotes from, from Dr. Barna. He says, while the survey cannot determine if churches are failing to teach biblical truth or whether congregants are exposed to such teaching but are rejecting it, the bottom line is that we are a society that has strayed far from the path of biblical truth. Ouch! It certainly seems, he says, as if the culture is influencing the church more than the church is influencing the culture. Case in point, 2,000 years ago, the city of Sardis. And they asked these people all kinds of questions, and what they found was, was the disturbing part is we have, we have answers to these questions that clearly show a worldview that is not biblical, it's not derived from the, the uh, teachings of the Bible, but it's derived from culture, and yet the people answering these questions would identify themselves as Christians who believe the Bible. So Barna says it this way, he says, the irony of the reshaping of the spiritual landscape in, the, in America is that it represents a post-Christian reformation driven by people seeking to retain a Christian identity. In other words, yes, I'm a Christian, but no, I don't really believe what's in the Bible. And this is what he's observing uh, in, this, in this survey. And again, he continues, the theology of this reformation is being driven by American culture rather than by biblical truth. The worldviews that are embraced by the adherents of these distinct religious communities reflect contemporary worldly influence rather than biblical influence. There is, he observes a, a compromise in the American religious culture, especially, he says, by people who call themselves evangelicals. And evangelical churches are adopting completely unbiblical beliefs. And it is startling to see uh, some of the questions and the results of them. Again, uh, I'll read some of them to you. Last night, I sent out a, a little survey, electronic survey late. And uh, uh, quite a number of people actually participated in it. And uh, whatever the results may be, I still haven't looked into them yet. But I put these questions down in the survey to see how people uh, on our list would respond to them. And here's the results that, that really are quite frightening. Uh, here's the question and uh, the percentage of evangelicals who reject this question. People are not basically good. We are sinners. 75% of evangelicals disagree with this statement. People are not basically good. We are sinners. That is a, that is a very, very frightening observation that three out of four people who were surveyed in this thing uh, would disagree with a statement that is so clearly taught 
from Genesis to Revelation. And this is, this is the toughest part, probably, of the message of the Bible, is that the worldview of humanity is that humanity is fallen. Not born basically good, but born basically with a sinful nature. 75% of evangelicals disagree with this. Wow, that is a stunning, stunning statistic. Here's another one with a strong percentage of evangelicals who disagree. Which faith you embrace matters as much or more than simply having some faith. In other words, it matters what you believe, not just that you believe. You can believe all kinds of things, but what you believe is extremely important. It matters as much or more than simply, simply having faith. 62% Barna reports of evangelicals disagree with this. So Jesus made a statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Apparently, 62% of American evangelicals disagree with this statement. That is absolutely stunning. It's no wonder Barna, who's been observing church culture for decades, is alarmed. And, you know, we talk about uh, the pandemic. Well, let me tell you, if there's truth to these statistics and there's truth uh, to us here in the province of Quebec, if there's truth to these statistics, then you know what the pandemic is. It is a wake-up call for the church to, to develop and to dig into a Christian worldview. If this is our worldview before the pandemic, maybe our worldview needs to change. Maybe some of the words that are addressed to this church in Sardis have to be applied to us. And look at some of the things that Jesus says here. He says, wake up, wake up. Wow, if, if you have rejected some of these basic, basic uh, precepts that are coming out of the pages of Scripture, now is a good opportunity to wake up. Look, the gospel message, the message of Christianity is going to offend people. Um, what I'm noticing when I talk to non-Christian folks, when I talk to Christian folks, is this, this uh, uh, problem of, of offense, and nobody wants to be offended. It's kind of like Sardis, you know. Let's well, let's build it right next to the right next to the Temple of Artemis, you know, and they just sort of get used to it. And nobody wants to go on record and say, "No, I believe this is right, and I believe this is wrong." And you can still do that. You can still have that conviction. Even if you're a 21st century Christian, you still can. Is it going to be offensive? Yes, it'll be offensive. When you say things like, we're not all born good, we're born with a sinful nature, that's pretty offensive to a person who says, well, I don't agree. I think we're all born good. Well, it's going to be offensive to them, is it not? Of course it will. It doesn't mean that you have to stop believing it because it is offensive. 
Okay, and this is the hard part is that we don't want to offend anybody. Let me tell you, the true gospel message is offensive to a certain degree. It, you cannot come to God for forgiveness of sin unless you are first offended that God calls you a sinner. You can't. You have to realize, I am in need of God's salvation, and that means he's going to tell you bad news first. We may not feel comfortable standing for that and having that type of conviction today, but it is a basic conviction that comes out of the pages of Scripture. And so Jesus says to this church, you're sleeping. Wake up. It's like when you were defeated by, by Cyrus. It's like when you were defeated by Antiochus. You're asleep at the switch. Your convictions have dried up, and your spiritual life is dead. I see it, Jesus says. People around you, they see what you show them, but I see your true spiritual life. He says, strengthen what remains. Apparently, there was a vestige of something there. He says, strengthen what remains. He says, hold to it fast. He says, repent. So, he, he says to them, you have time to turn this around. But your convictions, your world view, this is of paramount importance to your soul. And so often we look today at, our, at what's going on in our lives in the here and now. And we say, well, you know, I base God and my understanding of God on what is going on in my life in the here and now. That is a very, very shaky way for you to draw your picture of God. Because if you have, if you have a great life, if you have great circumstances, if everything is, is sort of happy and joyful for you, you're going you're gonna to have no problem with God because you're going to feel like God is on your side. But when things are not going well and when you're in difficult moments and difficult times and difficult uh, uh, circumstances and suffering and all this kind of stuff, and you start thinking about God, you're going to say, well, it's God who's doing this to me. That, that, is, um, that is a secondary thing. The primary problem that we have is that we need a relationship with God in spite of whatever is going on in our lives. You may have a great life. Everything may be going perfectly for you, my friend. If the Scripture is true, you're still a sinner. You still are. And you still need the forgiveness of God, and you still need salvation, because at the end of your life, everything that you have and that you think is so great it's all going to vanish right before your eyes. Or you may be on the other side of it, and you may say, I've had nothing but trouble in my life. I have nothing but trouble in terms of my health. I have nothing but trouble in terms of relationships, in terms of finance, in terms of whatever. Nothing but trouble. How could there be a God? He must hate me. He must be judging me. He must be the one responsible for this pain in my life. My friend, if that's your circumstance, you're still a sinner, and you still need the forgiveness of God, and you still need Him in your life, because your present circumstances are a blip on a radar. You and I have an eternal question that has to be answered, an eternal one. 
What is going to happen to you when all of this is gone? Is there something on the other side? Do you know if there is? Are you certain if there is or is not? What about your relationship with God, not your relationship with your circumstances? And this is what Jesus is trying to get this church to get a grip on. Wake up. Now, I see some churches speaking about the U.S. who, you know, the biggest thing uh, for them is, you know, to meet or not to meet. We're going to defy government orders and we're going to meet. Or we're not going to defy government orders and we're not going to meet. You know what? Whether they're meeting or whether they're not meeting, what do they believe? What are the convictions that are in the heart of the professed believer? Is it fluff? Is it a trade name? Or are there convictions that run deep into your soul that will sustain you no matter what's going on in your life? And this is the concern that Jesus has. And he has a great blessing for the people who come out of this and somehow change their, their, their position and their view. And he talks about wearing white and uh, the, their names not being blotted out of the, the book of life and so on. This is very, very powerful stuff. Uh, and all of this would symbolize a great blessing and a great victory for those who would be able to stop this business of compromise. But clearly something was up in this church, and maybe for you and for me, something is up with us. And maybe the time is now for us to take stock of the things that we say we believe and test ourselves. Do we really have those convictions, or is it just something on the outside? I'd like the band, if they'd go ahead back up to their places, and uh, you guys just feel free to choose something and play something. Uh, if you're all here, if you're not all here, whoever's here, and you guys have done a fantastic job in leading us today, and I'd like you to do that. And uh, while they're doing that and they're getting set up in the background, I'd like to have a word of, uh, of prayer with you uh, this morning, October the 18th, 2020. Uh, first, to those of you who are watching, those of you who um, maybe you're watching a recording of this or you're, you're listening to a recording of this, um, and you say, I, I, am not, I am not a follower of Jesus. I am not a Christian. I see what this entails, and uh, that is not me, uh, and I know it. And um, I'm not the person who's compromised. I'm the person who's not even there. But I understand that my, my, um, my present life and my present circumstances aren't necessarily a reflection of who God is and what God is doing. We can turn the mics on whenever we're ready there and get the musicians uh, heard in the stream. Um, so maybe that's you, and you say, I'm not even a Christian yet, uh, but I want to be. I want to be a follower of this Jesus. If that's you, I'm going to pray a really simple prayer with you uh, today. And are, are those mics okay? Oh, okay. Uh, well, mine is. So, I, so I'm, I'm going to pray for you. Um, and, and I'm just praying a simple prayer on your behalf today. Uh, Jesus, I come to you, and I ask, Lord, that uh, you would take over my life.
I remember we sang about uh, the fact that God has conquered my life. And Lord, I ask that you would just take over my life. I have tried to be the boss for far too long and have have journeyed a long time and realized that I make a lousy God. Uh, and so, Lord, I come to you and ask that you would forgive me and that you would take over my life. I don't know what it all means, Jesus, but I believe that you are alive and that you are calling me, and so I respond to you. And now, for those of you, and you say, well, I'm the Christian, and I, I need to I need to take stock of the things that I say that I believe. I need to do a little bit of self-examination. And Lord, we do that, and we're so we're so grateful that we can come to you in our time of need, and we can obtain mercy, and we can obtain grace. So we ask, Lord, that you would uh, you would direct our paths, and that you would uh, enable us to trust in you, and you would help us, Lord, to dig deep into our faith. You would help us, Lord, to develop uh, a prayer life and a life where we're actually reading the Bible and actually actually learning what it says and actually applying it to our lives. But Lord, we're thankful for your forgiveness and for your mercy today. Set us on a right place, even in this time in history where we deal with a pandemic. May it be a time where we who need to wake up would wake up as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead, you guys. Thank you, Jesus. Disappointment had, and I believe your promises 
above my circumstance. Fear can never conquer me, cause you already have. All the way through the night, you've got armies of angels assigned to my life. I've got nothing to fear. I surrender the fight to the one who is greater. Right here by my side, I've got nothing to fear. All the way through the night, you've got armies of angels assigned to my life. I've got nothing to fear. I surrender the fight to the one who is greater. Right here by my side, I've got nothing to fear. Peace has overcome my heart, so worry never can. Hope has taken back that space the disappointment has. And I believe your promises above my circumstance. Fear can never conquer me, cause you already have. And fear can never conquer me, cause you already have. And fear can never conquer me, cause you already have. Well, thank you so much for joining with us. I am hearing from my techies that we've had some streaming issues. Uh, we'll look into it, and if that's the case, we'll post a clean copy onto our website and Facebook pages. So despair not, uh, you will eventually be able to watch it, okay? Uh, but you're watching it already. Well, some of you have cut in and cut out, but you know what I mean. So thank you so much for tuning in and look forward to being with you again next week right here from Institut Biblique du Québec in Longueuil. Until then, God bless you, everyone.